This is the week of. Uh, I guess I should know the week of if I'm going to intro it that way. <laughs> this is the week of January 9th, 2023. Good God, 2023. Hi again, everybody. Welcome to Inside Curling. You are joining us along with our two World Curling Hall of Famers, uh, Warren Hansen and Kevin Martin. Uh, we want to recognize all our sponsors who bring the show to you. Sports Interaction, uh, they sponsor what is happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost is the sponsor of the mailbag. InsideCurling at gmail.com. Send us an email. Coyote Tractor, the sponsor of Hot Rock Topics. And Goldline brings you in the house, our guest spot, and we have one today. Here's what's on the show. What's happening around the curling world. There was one curling event that happened last week in Scotland. The Perth Masters. We're going to uh, take a look at that and what happened over in Perth. Sad news last week is a former world curling champion from the USA passed away, and we'll get an update on that. A tour of Scottish male curlers. Oh, my God, would I like to hang with these guys, Kevin? Okay. <laughs> I would really love to hang with these guys. I was talking to Warren about this yesterday. Uh, this tour of Scottish male curlers is coming to Canada. They're going to start later this week in a competition for the Strathcona Cup. So I'd asked Warren last night when we were shooting the breeze. I said, is it like just a few curling guys from Scotland who are coming over for this thing to join a bunch of others? He said, no, 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 no. It's half the country of Scotland is coming <laughs> over, okay, to, to do this thing. I really want to hear about this. Uh, also, the fourth Grand Slam of the year. The Co-op Canadian Open is taking place in Camerons, Alberta, and we'll check in on what's happening there. Hot Rock Topics, the Briar, is going to happen in a few weeks. Man, we're getting close, huh? Where's the time go? And it will be the last time Tim Hortons will be the title sponsor. Is there maybe some changes that might be made to the athlete sponsor cresting rules? We talk about it. We're going to find out more about that. Mailbag. Uh, we're going to look at a little story that we picked up from uh, LinkedIn about juniors and triples. Uh, also, we mentioned we have a, a guest on In the House. Her title sure sounds smart. <laughs> uh, this week's guest is assistant professor Dr. Heather Mayer, who is in the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies at the University of Waterloo. And, of course, that is near and dear to uh, Warren and everybody else's heart about the growth of curling and what's happening at the club level. All right, let's roll, boys. What's happening around the curling world is brought to you by Sports Interaction. You want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction. Get in on the action and make a play at Sports Interaction. you got to be 19 years old and living in Ontario. And please, we encourage you to play responsibly. Over in Perth, Scotland this past week, Perth Masters uh, has been taking place. And on the men's side, two very interesting teams were in the final. Kevin, you've been to Scotland, I'm sure. What's happening over there? We have been to Scotland. Uh, well, a lot of curling, actually. And this is an event that more for European teams and, uh, and, and Asian teams than Canadians. But Canadians do go to the Perth Masters as well. Um, it always happens right after the new year. So this is a really important event for teams to, to get off to a good start in the new year. Because there's quite a break at Christmas, usually. So that's why it's such an important event. On the women's side, actually, Daniela Yench, who's had a terrific year. So this will be her uh, third win, I believe. Now, I'm using my memory, uh, which isn't smart. But I believe it's her third win of the year um, <laughs> over um, uh, Rorvik out of, uh, out of Norway. 5-1 uh, in the final. So that's a really good start for Danielle and her crew. And then an unknown uh, team wins the men's side, Bruce Mowat. Uh, coming up, and uh, but but the important part with Bruce, uh, yes, that's not a surprise for Bruce Mowat to be winning, but he beat uh, Joel Retornas, who has had an incredible year 
uh, of course, just beat Bruce uh, here about a month ago. And uh, so now Bruce got him back 5-4 in a really good game on the men's side. So coming in, you've, you know, Bruce and uh, and Joel both playing really, really well uh, going into the Grand Slam coming up in Camrose. So kind of exciting Great event over in Scotland. I love talking about it. It's, it's something that a lot of teams look forward to after the Christmas break to be able to go battle in Perth. Right. Kevin, I got a question for you. Uh, in your days of curling, um, I, I played a little competitive golf when I was a junior, and I always wanted to play with guys who were way better than me, and I stood no chance at beating them. Uh, and other guys would rather play in a, in a field of people. And you know, if we look at curling saying, no, no, I want all the guys to be not as good as me, and I'd like a chance to win. What if, if you had to pick one, Kev? What what would you rather have done, or or what did you do? Well, the whole idea of the best against the best was what I always enjoyed—a really good, hard-fought battle against somebody like in, in my day, the Wayne Madaws or Ed Warenix or or Glenn Howard, whatever the case may be. That was so much fun. You definitely wouldn't win all the time against those guys, of course, because they're so good. But how much fun is that battling? Right. You know, a game where it ends up eight to one or something—that's not very fun. No different than any game. If uh, mind you, golf is a little different because you're competing kind of with yourself, in my opinion, and that's so that's a little different game where curling you are competing against the other team maybe a little bit against your your own ability but for the most part it's a scoreboard right how about you Warren would you rather play teams that are that you got a chance to beat or would you rather play in somewhere you maybe don't have a chance but you get to play I think as I look back through time I wanted to play teams that were good but not too good because uh-huh. <laughs> because <Okay. laughs> right, okay. when I was 17 years old playing Matt Baldwin, I don't think was really my immediate desire because I knew what the result was going to be. And to some degree, you'd, right. be, you'd be overwhelmed with who you're playing against. So I wanted to play good teams, but people that were in my own level that uh, some days they might be, be, other days I might beat them. So that was sort of the way I looked at it from a, from a curling point of view. Uh, Warren, we'll get your comment. Uh, as we had mentioned earlier, sad news was announced last week. The 1976 World Men's Curling Champion. Wow, this is hard to believe that the U.S. won that back then. Uh, he was on that team. Bruce Roberts passed away, Warren. Yeah, Bruce was 80 years old. He was a 1976 World Men's Curling Championship. Uh, he was curling with his brother Joe, Gary Clefman, and Jerry Scott. They finished the round robin in Duluth in 1976 with an 8-1 and record. They defeated Sweden by 9-3 in the semifinal. And Bill Muirhead of Scotland was their victim in the final 6-5. So back in, uh, in those days, the U.S. did very well at world curling. Interesting enough, they won the World Curling Championship with Bud Somerville in 1974. Joe Roberts wins it in 1976. And in 1978, Bobby Nichols was a champion. So three years out of five, the U.S. won it. But 1978 is the last time that they did win the World Men's Curling Championship. So it's been a while, but certainly uh, Roberts was a key player back in that day and age. He represented the U.S. at the World five times between 67 and 84. And uh, he was a great player. I knew him uh, not well. He was a very quiet guy. He was a school teacher, but uh, he was certainly for his day, he was, he was a good player. He will be missed by the curling world. Thank you, Warren. Uh, the fourth Grand Slam of the year, the Co-op Canadian Open is taking place in Camrose, right close to you and me, Kev. Uh, so this event is being run a little different uh, than the last three slams in that it'll be a triple knockout. Bring us up to speed, Kev, and your comments on triple knockout versus the other formats. 
different teams like different formats depending on how they come into an event and do they usually start out strong or get stronger as the, as the games go on a lot of times in a round robin if you come into the event and sort of stumble a bit at the start you can find yourself sort of out of it early whereas in a triple knockout you lose one you lose two you're still alive in c it's a matter of winning three before you lose three to get to the quarters if that makes sense okay. to you win three before you lose three you're in the playoffs. So it's, it's a different way of running the event. I think it's really fair. There's no tie break possibility because once you've lost at a C, you're gone. See you later. You're toast. So if you win at a C, you're in the playoffs. There's no tie breakers. So that kind of cleans up the playoff structure. And that way, I really, I really like it. One thing when you're uh, talking about cameras, what a beautiful building, the Encana Center. Mm-hmm. Really good seating. It's really funny when you, when you look in the crowd, when you're watching, uh, coming up this weekend on Sportsnet, they have a railing around the entire concourse. And you'll see that the building will be full. Like, uh, I know ticket sales have been fantastic, which is great. You Usually cocktails served up top. Of course. <laughs> and in, of course, the, the Eat Well Zone, the Pinty's Eat Well Zone. But people are all leaning over the rail. The, the rail is full up top, and you're going to see empty seats. But they're not, they're not, not they're, they're sold. Mm-hmm. But the people are there, everybody's up top having fun and talking. And it's just a really, really good environment in this building. So it's a, it's a great place for the curlers. Um, you're in curling country. You say it's just down the road from Edmonton. So you're in curling country about uh, from my hometown of Lougheed, where maybe 50 minutes from Lougheed, uh, where there's lots of curling clubs around the area. So really good spot to go. The curlers will uh, really enjoy the, the knowledge of the crowd. Uh, it'll be a good crowd. The men's quarters uh, happen noon on Saturday and the men's and the women's quarters at four o'clock Saturday, semifinal Saturday night, eight o'clock Saturday night. And then the finals go on Sunday. Action starts on Tuesday of this week, uh, which is about when uh, this show comes out. We actually tape on, on Monday. So it, it starts tomorrow for us, but it'll start uh, Tuesday and all through the week. For those people that are getting over their time spent at the Big Valley Jamboree, Kevin, in Camrose, okay, which knocks people out for about eight months, Warren, after they go to that. Uh, there's something going on at night, isn't there, Kev, with, with this event? You can always get somewhere and have a pint, can't you? Oh, definitely, yes. And, uh, well, actually, at the event itself, you can always have a pint at a curling event. Um, yeah, it's just a great uh, facility. Inside the building, um, there'll be a, a kind of a, a social house will happen, but you've also got the Pinty's Eat Well Zone at the end of the rink. That's something unique to the Grand Slam. Sure. It's a lot of fun to go down and, and grab some uh, Pinty's wings and cocktail and enjoy yourself. Uh, as we have been doing, it's now become a tradition, and I've now uh, renamed it. It's called uh, Jim Gets His Ass Kicked every week by Kevin and Warren uh, to make our <laughs> to make our picks oh. <laughs> uh, for this event. We'll start with you, Warren. Uh, then Kevin, and then me. I've I've got a, I've got a very good strategy this week. Okay, I've got a very good strategy. So, Warren, give us your picks, your four teams that you think will qualify for the final eight. This is kind of tough because these teams haven't been playing uh, for a while. A few of them have, but most of them haven't. So it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. So I'm going to make my picks based a little bit on what how things were happening in early December, but. Number one, I have to, without question, pick Kairi Einerson to be in the final eight. Fushisawa from Japan has been consistent throughout the year. She'll be there as well. Rachel Holman, I couldn't overlook her. And although Terrazoni had a little bit of a bump there in early December, I think they'll be back stronger than ever. So those are my four. Einerson, Fushisawa, Holman, and Terrazoni. Kevin? 
On the women's side, I can't stray too far from you. I've got Carrie Anderson, Holman, and uh, Silvana Terenzoni, but I've got Unji Gim as uh, my fourth semifinalist. Okay. On the men's side, I've got, uh, of course, Bruce Mallett just coming off a big win and beating uh, Joel Retornas, so I've got them as well. And then Brad Guju, and I've got Kevin Cooey. That's the four on the men's side for me. Mallett, Guju, Kevin Cooey, and who? I'm writing this down because I have a strategy. <laughs> Retornas. Retornas, okay. All right. Now, Warren, your, your men's picks. Yeah, the men's pick's a little tougher than the women's for me, but um, I have to off the top because of uh, both Mawad and Ratana's just finishing in the Perth Masters, those two for sure. I think Gushu, again, he's just been right there all year. And again, Botcher a bit of a hiccup in December, but I think these guys are finally going to come to the forefront this time around. So those will be my four to be in the final eight. Here's my strategy. I am going to pick, uh, on the women's side, Warren, write this down because it's going to be my first. Uh, I'm going to pick Gim. And Fujisawa, Homan, and Einerson. So see, it's slightly different than the two of you, okay? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the men's side, I'm going to pick uh, Botcher, Guju, Mawat, and Kui. I hope that's different. All right. See, everyone is absolutely speechless over my picks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think you have a better chance than yeah, usual. Exactly. <laughs> I think next time we're going to let Jim go first. Okay. Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased to uh, acquiesce to, to you guys. Uh, okay. So get down to cameras. Kev, I might get down there and, and bug you while you're in the booth. I love this story. I want to hear about it. A tour of Scottish male curlers is, is coming to Canada this week to compete in what is known as the Strathcona Cup. Kevin, should we lock all the bars or what? <laughs> Tell us about this event. Well, this is uh, an interesting one. Kind of slides under the radar as far as that it even happens. But every five years, there's a group of curlers goes to either from Canada to Scotland or Scotland to Canada. And this year, it is the turn is the Scottish curlers are coming to Canada, which of course they do once every ten years. But this event has been around for 120 years, so it's not just a newie. It'll start in Canada on January 12th, and it'll take place for 23 days. The first, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and this goes back to 1902, and of course it's uh, contested every five years. Now in its 120th year, 60 male curlers from Scotland will come to play against Canadian teams, and they will travel from St. John's, Newfoundland to Victoria. They will play games in 85 different centers in all uh, while they're here. <laughs> it's divided into three distinct tours, Western, Central, and Eastern, with 20 Scottish curlers playing in each segment of the tour. How the winner is determined is also interesting. It's based on total rocks or points scored in all 350 games that they will play. So whichever side scores the most points, (laughs) there's no mercy rules here, will be declared the winner. Uh, Lord Strathcona, uh, who originated this trophy, uh, was Scottish-born Canadian businessman, He became one of the British Empire's foremost builders and philanthropists in Canada, going back to the late 1800s. So in 1909, he commissioned the trophy for competition between Canada and Scotland. His actual name was Sir Donald Smith, and he was actually inducted into the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame in 1973. So there you have it. The Strathcona Cup is soon to be underway. Uh, Maybe you want to call it, I don't know, the drinking tour of Canada. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, here's a couple of mistakes that they're making, Kevin. Uh, 
first of all, they're starting in Newfoundland, so I give about half those teams no shot at continuing the rest of the tour once they're done. Screeched in a few times, right? <laughs> yeah, they should have. They should have reversed it. And the other one, uh, Kev, is uh, probably each event they're going to lose about two or three, two or three teams each club, and say. Listen, pick me back up when you're coming back from Victoria. <laughs> Did you ever do this, Kev? Ever, ever, anything like this? No, I've never been involved, but that sounds like something a person should get involved with. 23 days, but for us, it would be 23 days going over to Scotland, Warren. And oh my goodness, that would be uh, your liver would come back the size of a football. But what fun, what great fun. It's quite an organization. John Shea, who we've had on the show, is the Canadian captain this year. And so he organizes the whole Canadian end of things. People actually... Uh, a lot of people apply to go on this thing, and everybody wants to go who doesn't uh, end up getting selected. So it's a, it's quite a process that I think they probably started selecting the people to go a couple of years ago. There's also a similar, the United States and Scotland have a similar exchange. I'm not sure what they call it, but uh, it takes place there. As a matter of fact, I, I read a tweet a couple of days ago. I think the Americans are going to Scotland here in the next couple of weeks as well. So it's those three countries that are involved. I'm not sure if anybody else is, but interesting for sure. The equivalent of the Le Mans 500. <laughs> uh, anyway, have fun, boys. I'm sure we don't need to wish you that, but uh, that's what we should get updates, Warren. We should get updates about every two days you know, to hear what's going. Maybe we'll get John Shea on with us. He can give us the uh, the update on the who's winning, who's losing in the Strathcona Cup. I know, John. Uh, get him on early. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's what's happening around the curling world. Hot Rock Topics brought to you by Coyote Tractor. If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, UTVs, and ZTRs to do it. We dig dirt. Uh, big topic, big news over the last little while. The Briar is going to be happening in a few weeks, and it'll be the last time uh, Tim Hortons will be the sponsor. Uh, what what do we know about that? Uh, any hints at who it's going to be, uh, Warren? And, and did you get any any idea, Warren, of why they dropped out and what's happening there? I'm not sure. I, I think once Tim Hortons changed its ownership here a few years ago, that uh, kind of their philosophy on how they did things changed. And I, I felt that for quite some time before they did announce their departure, that they would probably be going because I do not think it sort of fitted into the way that the company is uh, is directed now versus what it was when uh, when it was Canadian ownership and they were very community oriented with everything they did and not so much anymore. So I, I, I saw it coming. So I don't think there's anything you could put your finger on saying why they left, but mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, year for Curling Canada to come up with a replacement for sure. Right. Uh, Kev, what do you think about that? You've, you've seen lots of major sponsors for the Briar. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I just think it's uh, an evolution of everything, you know, business changes to, to Warren's point, new ownership and, how they feel about different sports and different uh, opportunities makes a difference. So um, I'm not worried that way. I think a new sponsor will come on board. Um, and of course, as the Briar and Scotties changes, mm-hmm. the value may change because, you know, you had Labatt's for a long, long time and, and then Nokia and Tim Hortons, and now there'll be a new one. And, and it's no different than any sporting event when uh, a sponsor decides to, to move to different segment of of society to to market their their wares and that's 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 fine yeah one sign warren that sports are growing is that the the money to be a major sponsor uh goes up people are always curious warren what would a tim hortons deal what would a title sponsor roughly uh be worth to to sponsor the briar in the millions, or is it? Uh, yes, but it's really hard to put the finger on because the way this whole thing was created the last time around, it wasn't uh, 
the whole season champion structure wasn't a kind of a, a real normal sponsorship because a lot of the return on investment was based on television airtime. So okay. it was very hard to uh, to put a price tag on it. So I'm not, as I say here today, I'm not totally sure what they would be looking for, quite frankly. The other thing, Warren and Kevin, if there is a new sponsor, will that change what everyone's been talking about, getting their own right to get a sponsor crest? Will that be different, Warren, do you think, going forward? There's quite a history here, and uh, let's just talk about uh, where where things started and where they've gone to over the last almost 100 years. So when McDonald Breyer started the Breyer back in 1927, it was their baby, top to bottom. They ran it. They controlled it. And it was a long time ago, and uh, certainly they didn't allow any crest or signage on a player's uniform other than the Purple Heart that they provided. That was the rules. And those were the rules, steadfast and true, up until 1979 when they departed as the title sponsor. There was never any kind of identification on the player's uniform at the Briar. Labatt came in in 1980, and uh, although a lot of things changed, that was one that didn't. They very much protected the corporate identification of Labatt exclusively. But towards the end of the Labatt sponsorship, they started to divide things down. And the fact that they brought in themselves a, a number of secondary sponsors... I remember one was John Deere, who all of a sudden, they were getting back bumper signage, they were getting this, they were selling off part of the property. So in essence, the old Labatt deal ended in 1994, although they were still there for another five years, and the Season of Champions was created by the St. Clair Group, and their rights were sold to the St. Clair Group by Curling Canada. Again, when this whole deal was made, they were given exclusive rights to uh, pretty much all the Canadian uh, properties. And again, there was no allocation for any kind of identification on the player uniform other than what uh, they might choose to put on it from a title sponsor point of view. That was beginning to create a lot of rumbling. And by 1997, the rumbling got so loud that a group of curlers led by Russ Howard and a company in Toronto, the Landmark Group, guys named Elliot Kerr, former IMG guy, actually sued the uh, Canadian Curling Association for the right for athletes to wear cresting on the uniform. In addition to Elliot Kirk, Russ Howard was the guy that was at the front of the bus, but Kevin's name was on that along with 12, I think 12 other curlers. It actually went to court. It was a fairly extensive and costly battle that uh, the curlers in the end lost and the Canadian Curling Association and the St. Clair Group retained the right to not allow the athletes to have any identification. And although I guess they thought it was going to go away, it didn't. And uh, as a result, Kevin led the group in 2001 that uh, departed from playing in the Briar for three years. Uh, and, and this was one of the key issues that were behind all this thing. So when a settlement was reached in 2003-04 for the players to return to the Briar, there was a significant amount of money that was put into the event that wasn't there before. But the other thing that came to the forefront was this athlete cresting thing. And it was agreed that when the Tim Hortons contract was up in 2008, that it would be negotiated into the new contract that some provision would be put in place for athlete cresting. Well, 2008 came and went and nothing happened. And the, the group that Kevin had started had kind of faded by then. And as a result, nobody really jumped on it. So here we are. It's 2023. The Briar is 94 years old this year, I believe, and uh, we still have the same rules in place that existed in 1927 with regard to the athlete being able to identify any kind of sponsorship. It's a changing time. Pretty near all sports have figured out a way to do this. 
can be a little complicated, but I think, again, Curling Canada, as they're now moving forward with a new sponsor, from my point of view, has to address this issue. And uh, I think we sit back here, and it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Kevin, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is sure something that we were involved in for a long time. And uh, I was going to say with Warren, but more against Warren back in the day, all those years ago. Well, if you can imagine, Jim, um, so you go in as a team or your agent goes or whoever goes and you try to sign a title sponsor for your brand, for your team. And you go in and say that you're going to use their colors and they're going to have left chest, maybe middle of the back, perfect logo. They've got the colors. They get the color of the brooms. They get all of that. Okay. But in, the, in of course, the negotiation, you say, okay, well, that's, that's in the Grand Slams. But when it comes to, it used to be called the Canada Cup. Now there's the points bet and whatever else happens. Well, actually, you can only have your sponsor on the left sleeve. We can't have the left chest or the back because that's given to a sponsor in the event itself. Then you go to the Scotties or the Briar, and it's a different location. If you happen to win that and go to Worlds, it's a different location, different size. You can't wear your colors and your brand. So then in the end, the marketing person you're talking to, th their eyes glaze over because they're going, so what are, what are we signing for? Like, well, what, when, when can you wear our logo and our colors? When can't you? And how are we going to figure this value out all of a sudden? And it's a real problem for the curling teams as, as teams travel more and more. The, the game is growing internationally like crazy. There's a lot of cost. So teams do need substantial sponsorship to be able to play or at the highest level. And, but you've got events in Canada that are run like 1927, but teams are trying to run their events in 2023. So somehow this does have to change. It, it actually does have to change. Um, otherwise teams in order to sign title, just won't be able to play in certain things. They just can't. Like it, it can't keep continuing on. It just, it doesn't work. Let me put all the crests I want on my jacket. Uh, and I bet that would uh, help grow the sport a little bit when teams look at it and go, okay, there's a, bit, there's a bit of a pot here that we can make. Look at NASCAR, Kevin. All right? You can whack any decal you want on your car. They got hundreds of them on there. And it's an unbelievably popular sport that continues to grow. And there's no, no restriction, you know? I don't care as a fan, Kevin, watching it, if you have a thousand logos on your jacket. There is a way of working through it. I think the PGA Tour did it fairly well as to how they approached the whole thing. And uh, everybody's got to be prepared to give a little take, but it needs to start somewhere. And, and, and something would be better than what currently exists, which is nothing. Which is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> give me my cash. There we go. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, and that'll be a juicy one. InsideCurling at gmail.com or go to the Facebook uh, page and weigh in. Let's go to Mailbag, brought to you by Nestle Boost, complete nutrition to fuel your day. Today we're going to uh, do something a little different and take a comment from LinkedIn. It was made by Dustin McCush, who is the Community Development Manager at Curl, Saskatchewan. He says, throughout the 21-22 season, we noticed participation was low in our U15 numbers. Spiels were being canceled because of no entries. We recognize the need to innovate, adapt, and embrace change to increase entries. How about implementing triples and open gender, uh, rotation of positions, set scoring, fun team names, etc. Then fast forward to the 2022-23 season. 32 different triple teams played in our U15 Spiel uh, this past fall. Team names were things like small town shooters, drawing a blank, <laughs> hammer brothers, ringleaders. 
Oh, I would love to name some of these teams, Warren. I would like to come up with a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> Curling needs to be looking for new and better ways to keep it growing. Warren, what do you think of all this? Not bad. Not bad from that guy. Yeah. Congratulations to Dustin for getting out of the uh, the shell and doing something new and different, which again, it comes back to the whole idea of these Gen Zers. It's got to be quick, fun, and engaging. And I think it, he's done exactly that to what they're doing here. So kudos out to him. I hope more people start to take this type of thing to heart and begin to look at doing things in a different way, in a different mold than what we have done in the past to get younger people attracted and interested. And I think this is a good example of what can be done. So if you're listening to this out there, keep that whole thing going. Uh, triples, as everybody knows, I love it, love it, love it, because you play your different positions. Um, if you're a beginner, you're forced to learn how to skip. You, you you have to learn how to play the middle position. You have to learn how to sweep. you got to learn the whole thing. Dustin, I've known him now for quite a few years, real good curler, a really smart guy. He was a recipient, I believe, back in the day of the Hex Gervais Scholarship Foundation that I was part of those years ago. So smart guy and very passionate about our sport. And yeah, congratulations, Dustin, on getting this uh, triples format up and running. I think it works so well, especially with young curlers, to be able to learn the whole game by uh, trading positions through the game. And the games, Jim, are just over an hour long. It's six ends, six rocks. I'm glad to hear they're doing it in Saskatchewan and it's going so well. How about you have about 15 guys on each team? I'm in for that. Jim, we need you in the third end to throw one rock. Okay, that's it. And you can watch the rest of the day. <laughs> I think all these things, triples, uh, we've heard a lot recently about sterling as it applies to uh, to stick curling, but it could also be applied to normal. I mean, there's so many things you can do that are thinking of the box. I'm talking to a lot of people about stick curling, uh, talking to Jim Armstrong a couple of days ago, who's, of course, from the wheelchair uh, side of things, but he's got... Uh, some things going down there in golf. He says uh, people are are going crazy about learning how to stick curl. He's teaching them, and I, I think again, it's it's for people that have maybe retired. They're older. This is just an ideal way where they've ever curled in their lives before to get them involved. And we can be filling facilities during down ice times with stick curlers. It's another thing of the mold that worked for the last two hundred years needs to be uh, restructured. Okay, that was mailbag. Send us an email. InsightCurling at gmail.com. In the house, yes, we've got a guest. It's brought to you by Goldline. Goldline Curling Equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they've got two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of Curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The wheels on the bus. (laughs) That's the only song I knew, fellas, in high school, and apparently I didn't know all of it. Uh, as mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a great guest. Uh, all the problems with uh, curling clubs, which we've talked about extensively uh, over the course of this show, and uh, what's happening with them—a bunch closing—are uh, the are the worst updates we'd like to get, but we do get them. And as we said, joining us from the University of Waterloo, Heather Mayer, uh, who's going to discuss these problems with us. I would have liked this degree, Heather. Um, <laughs> uh, th- this sounded like one one I wanted to do. 
you are in the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies at the University of Waterloo, where the great Oktoberfest is. Uh, Heather, thanks a lot for joining us. How are you? Happy New Year. I'm great, thanks. What a pleasure to be here. Happy New it Year. It sounds like a real genuine pleasure. You you would be one of our guests who's really happy to be here. That's great. <laughs> I'm very unusual. Happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, very unusual. Yeah, very unusual. Uh, did we find you in Waterloo, Heather? I'm in Waterloo today, yep. Yeah. Uh, so explain to us uh, about uh, what you do and, and what happens in that department and your connection to curling and what you're doing about it. Okay, great. Thanks. Well, thanks, everybody, for inviting me. Um, I'll begin by saying everybody likes to kind of roll their eyes a little bit when they hear that we work in the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies. But I invite you all to think about what your most important uh, aspects of your life are. And we often talk about our hobbies, our activities, the sports that we play, the things that we do for our social life. And that's what we study in the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies, convincing people that what we do in our free time is really among the most important things that we do. It leads to our health and our well-being. And I came to curling uh, research because having grown up in rural New Brunswick, I didn't curl. I wasn't, I wasn't involved in the club personally, but I knew it as a space where people met their friends and their family. They had social events. They got married. They played a regular activity in the wintertime. It just seemed like a really important place for well-being that uh, I wanted to know more about. And I was a huge fan of watching curling on television. And then I realized that as a, a new professor coming into the department, I had to figure out what my research program was going to be. And I wanted to study the clubs and find out from people in the clubs what the club meant to them, what the club meant to the community, and just how important these spaces are as recreation spaces for the people who live in these areas. And, and give us an idea of what you've found out so far. So the project began, I guess my work really started in 2005, and I've been plugging away at curling projects ever since. And the first project I did took me all across the country, meeting with people in particularly small curling clubs, rural uh, clubs across the country, and finding out, you know, I think my first my first inkling was that they were important places for community events. You know, they were more than curling clubs, was kind of how I wanted to think about it. But as I got into the clubs and started to talk to the people who were there, I learned that they were just essential places for well-being. And people talked about, um, you know, how it led them to uh, an active life in retirement or a place to teach their kids about uh, the knowledge and the skills and the values that we want them to have as they move into the world. Sport can be a good trainer for those kinds of things. I just realized that it was it was about what's going on on the ice, but it's also really, really important to understand all the social relationships that get created. And then I realized that they were really undervalued by people who didn't understand what went what goes on inside of them. They have a, a bit of an image as a club. They can be seen as quite exclusive, that people really don't feel they belong in them. Um, I heard from a lot of people that the municipal governments often don't take them seriously. They don't see them as as valuable the way that they might see, say, a hockey rink or a swimming pool. And so I started to want to really try to translate or articulate for people who don't understand the world of curling just how important they are as community spaces for sport and for socializing. You talked about people not feeling or feeling like they don't belong. We've always said one of the great things about curling is, is its grassroots it brings everyone together. Um, it is social. A lot of a lot of people play it for that reason alone, and and not just to win. Why is it that some people feel like they don't belong? I think part of it is is the title, and I've had this conversation with a number of people. Calling it a club sort of makes people think about members and non-members. Um, they also tend to be. This isn't 
true everywhere, but it's true in a lot of places. They tend to be really kind of low-key, understated buildings. I, I went to do research in a club outside of Ottawa. My sister lived in the town and had lived there for years. She had no idea where the club was. People don't even necessarily know. They're not on your radar as a recreation space. So they're pretty understated. I think that we're learning, and I'm, this is some of the work I'm doing more more recently, trying to make them uh, places where people who might not have been traditionally curling, had, didn't grow up in a curling family, maybe are new to Canada, that they can feel a bit more comfortable in those spaces. I think there are some barriers there, language, accessibility, those kinds of things. Before I bring in Warren and Kevin, do you think it's harming the growth then of the sport? Is it that detrimental? That's a good question. I, I don't know. And I think that's another thing that we need to pay a lot of attention to. I don't think we have a good handle on how many people curl regularly. I don't think we've we've really asked everybody. My sense is that the sport is growing in that people see it as something that they're more familiar with than they've ever been. That's because of all the TV exposure. I'm not sure that that's translating into growth in the clubs. When we hear about these clubs closing alongside those clubs, we might hear of another club near that one that's full to the rafters and can't accommodate everybody. But that could be the same group of people just moving to different spaces. I'm not sure that we have a good sense of who's coming into curling new and 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 who's staying as a member. We have lots of learn to curl programs that we understand are doing a good job of introducing the sport. I'm not too sure that we know how that translates into full membership. Thanks, Jim. Heather, thanks for joining us. I first want to go on to that name club and uh, ask the question from your point of view. Do you think that every club in Canada should change the name to curling center or curling facility? Would that help them to some degree if that was to happen? I think it would help. It's it's almost cosmetic in some ways. I think if you change the name from club to center, but it still feels like a club inside, <laughs> you know, I think I think other things kind of need to be taken uh, in, into account. We need I think membership needs to be rethought, accessibility needs to be rethought, diversity needs to be rethought, and those things have to go hand in hand with a name change. I don't I don't think that's enough. I think it's a good start, and I have worked with clubs that have made that change and dropped sort of that that club as part of their title, trying to come up with something more interesting, I think, and more attractive. But it's got to be more than that. We've lost a lot of sheets of ice in Canada over probably the last 10, 15 years. I think the most notable that I always bring up are three facilities, one in Edmonton, one in Calgary, and the other one is in Winnipeg. Uh, the Edmonton Sportix had 24 sheets of ice. The Big Four in Calgary had 48, and the Highlander in Winnipeg had 24. They're gone, along with many, many other clubs so there are some issues. From your research, what do you think is the number one problem that uh, these clubs are facing today with regard to moving forward? I think it stems from just not being taken seriously as as really important, valid spaces for recreation that needs to be supported. So if the clubs are having to work on their own through GoFundMe pages or whatever these activities are to try to work independently to save their club, I think that's a real, that's a big problem. The clubs need to be supported from a provincial and a national and institutional standpoint. I think that comes from the curling associations, but it also has to come from the municipal, the provincial, and the, the federal government. We need to be supporting, it's not surprising, I think, to hear a professor of recreation say we need to be supporting recreation spaces to keep them open and keep them accessible. I think I think that's the biggest problem. I think we don't see it as valuable, and we need to start seeing just how valuable these spaces are. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right in the fact that there are facilities in Canada that are owned and and maintained by municipalities, but the majority aren't. And I think we've talked a bit quite a bit here about the fact of 
the municipalities and the provincial governments need to have more responsibility for these facilities, just like they do with the soccer field or the hockey rink. And it comes down to many things, the cost of hydro, everything else that's that's killing some of these facilities. And that there needs to be a, a lobby created, which we think that the provincial associations are probably the, the best route for this to go, but there doesn't seem to be anything moving there. How do you see that this should all properly happen and the fact that the governments start to pay attention? A, cu- a couple of things. I think it has to happen on all sides. One of the th- arguments that I've a- always been trying to make, and I try to make it through the funding agencies that support my work, I apply to organizations like Sport Canada for funding to understand kind of curling. I also think Health Canada has a role to play. We need to see these as health sites, as well-being sites. So there's a government conversation to have there where we can advocate better how valuable these spaces are for recreation and for well-being and for health. But on the other side, I think the associations, the curling organizations, and I have to be honest, I'm still learning about the tensions between the National Association and the provinces, and I know every province is different, down to the clubs. And I think we need to do a better job of understanding what everybody's role is. I think the my sense is that the elite level of the sport has gained a lot of attention, and I think it's, you know, there are problems with it, but it seems to be there's a lot more attention to making that roll out smoothly and to have everybody kind of figure out what their roles are. That's my sense. But when it comes to recreation play, I think it comes down to the clubs to figure this out and to sort of keep themselves afloat. And I, I think that's that's risky, and we need to work to improve communication probably between the clubs and the provinces and then the, the national associations. But I also see a, a role of lobbying or being an advocate to health organizations, to sport organizations on behalf of these clubs so that they can get the support that they need. They can't do it alone. We know they're volunteers you know, or they're poorly paid or they're overworked and everything we suggest that they need to do around diversity or inclusion or accessibility, whatever it is, is one more item on their job list. And it ju- it has to be a bigger conversation where they get more support. Kevin? Well, yeah. Well, thank you, Heather, for coming on, for sure. Uh, this is kind of a really interesting point for me. I am a, I'm a farm kid, so I grew up in a little wee town, Lougheed, Alberta, with a two-sheet club. And I just want to ask you about, and then now, of course, my store is in one of the biggest clubs in the Savile a sports center in Edmonton, a 10-sheeter. So I get to see both sides of it very, very well. And both clubs are actually doing fairly well. I'd love to hear the difference that you see between urban and rural curling clubs because they're, they're simply not run the same at all. But how do you promote, I guess, because a lot of people listen to this podcast, and how do we uh, help, I guess, both the rural clubs and the, the urban clubs? Because in the Savile's case, there's lots of staff. It's a busy place. It's right on the University of Alberta campus. And then you've got Lougheed, which is a small town. Club's still doing okay, um, but it's more a place to have bond spiels and, to your point, a get-together area for the people in town. How do we support them both? Well, yes, and how do we promote both? Like to tell people, you know, how do we get these clubs, you know, ramping it up so they're not alone and uh, and quiet? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I good good researchers always say when they don't know something, and I, I, I think there's more work to be done in terms of thinking more about the urban space. I know the rural space, because it's an easy argument to make, right? When you only have three things going on in the town, and one of them is the curling club. The curling club's doing really well. In an urban space, there's more competition, there are more things going on, there's more, you know, things demanding your time. So they're, they're really different contexts, and the urban clubs are better supported and better resourced than the rural ones aren't. But I, I, I just, I think it comes back to really sharing the knowledge that we have about how important the sport is for the people who are uh, around it and in it. And it's a family thing and it's kids and it's exercises, all these pieces. And that's true no matter what size club you're in. They play that role for everybody. 
Uh, and I, I just, I, I think I said to to Warren in my email, I said, curlers, the curlers listening to this will be going, yeah, uh-huh, I, we know that, we all know that. But when you step outside of the curling world, people don't know it. You still hear the jokes about what curling's really like, about, you know, beer in one head and a cigarette in the other and all the jokes about the old clubs and things. And there's a lot of work to do that happens through exposure, through the television. That's all very important stuff. I have I love watching curling on TV, but there's got to be more of a sharing of what goes on inside the clubs and how valuable they are for all the things that are important to us as recreation and leisure spaces. We just I think we need to get better at articulating that. And again, that's true for all clubs. I, I don't know if I've answered your question, Kevin, but I think that that's part of it. Well, I think so. Um, for myself, you know, if you think about the memories of, of, of a curling club when you're a kid, for me in Lougheed, it wasn't a very big town from the school to the curling club to the hockey rink was, well, maybe two or 300 yards. So after school, you'd go to the hockey rink, play shinny, because of course it wasn't real busy. So you play shinny, 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 and then go over to the curling club because they had homemade burgers always, and they're fantastic homemade pies. <laughs> it was you know awesome. So then <laughs> have something to eat. I got to get to that club. Hey, oh yeah, and then the curling would start at around seven o'clock. The league. Well, if somebody was short, I'd curl a game, and then and then on the weekends, um, there'd be say six weekends of a year where there'd be bond spiels, and you would go to different towns. That was kind of the essence of it, I think. Everybody curled, and then you'd go to different towns and support their clubs, and they, they would come to your club, and that's kind of how the Bonspiel mesh worked back home. And then now, that's why I wanted to ask you about Urban as well, because when it comes to the local the clubs in, in Edmonton, you're right, some of them, it's just feast or famine. The ones that are doing well are full, like they're full to capacity, so there's hardly even time to have a practice and then other clubs are struggling big time. And I think you're right. It's promotion with like an octopus with eight prongs as to how to get uh, the various groups around the city involved, be it new people to Canada, which is very important. I think we really need to get them involved because curling is so fun. I do a lot of teaching um, of groups and a lot of them are pure beginners. And there's got to be a 15 to 20% of them that love it. Now, there's 15 or 20% that hate it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but because it's too cold and too slippery. <laughs> when it comes to about 15, 20%, they can't wait to get to another club and, and, uh, and participate. But being involved in that club is sometimes overwhelming, and they just don't have the, the courage to walk inside that door and, be, and, and get involved. I think, you know, the, the, a few stories stick out from all the research that, that we've been doing over the years. And one of the things that I've, that I've always said is that curlers, curlers who are committed love the sport so much that they truly, genuinely believe that you just have to try it. Just come try it because that's what happened for you. You tried it and you loved it. That's true for, I think you're right, maybe 30% of the people who give it a shot. Some other people, it's never going to be for them. But there's that great middle group who are just, especially, you know, people kind of in their 30s and 40s, they're looking for something to do. They don't want a whole lot of investment. They they want to be social and they want to get a bit of exercise. And how do we capture that group? And and part of it, I think, is giving people a, a bit of information so that they can be successful at the sport 
and then allowing them to kind of figure out whether or not they want to move into a more competitive stream or to stay back and just be social. And not all clubs can handle that. I have a colleague who started curling with his sister and was frustrated by the club because he actually really wanted to improve. He did the learn to curl and he went out there and then they kind of left him alone. And he's been at it for a couple of years now. And he's like, I really want to build my skills. So how do we help someone in their 40s or their early 50s actually generate the skills that they need to be successful? These are highly accomplished people. They want to have a satisfying experience. Matching that requirement also with people who just want to come and have a drink and hang out with some friends and trying to satisfy all those different needs is a, is a really big challenge. Not to mention people who are coming in from a kind of a non-Canadian context, didn't grow up with it, don't understand it. Uh, language and cultural challenges are coming. Accessibility challenges are coming. It's a lot to ask for a sport to try to accommodate all these people. I think that's part of the issue. And and uh, we talk about that a lot. And I, I look back to where this whole thing originated. And it, it was in the curling club. And then this company, McDonald Tobacco, came along in 1927 and decided that they were going to become the sponsor of the Canadian Men's Curling Championship, or what was referred to as the Canadian Curling Championship. And what it started out as, really, if we look back at even in my time, um, when I first came to BC to play in the Briar Playdowns, you first had to win out of your club. And, and the Briar initially really was a curling club championship. Uh, certainly in the early going, every province, you had to first win in your curling club to get on the road to possibly representing the province. Time evolves. We now get into the 80s and now the 90s where two things happen. The Olympics become a reality and the Grand Slam of curling develops. And as a result, that club-originated orient- or- champion no longer was really applicable anymore. Yet today, we still, to a very large degree, seem to be pounding that peg into the round one into the square hole of trying to make that work. And I look at it to a very large degree that we need a separation within curling of probably maybe even three levels. The top guys, the ones just below, and then the purely recreation people. And I think this needs to start at probably about the age of 18 where you decide which route you want to go once you've had a good introduction. Do you think that that's part of the issue or what's your thoughts about all that? I think separating them makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure where in someone's kind of life course those decisions, because people can change their mind and they can you know, want different things at different stages in their life. But I do think that one of the things that's always concerned me, um, and curling does this, but a lot of other sports do, is they make the argument about elite sport by saying it will generate recreational activity. They'll say people will see it on TV and then they'll want to join the club and be recreational curlers or hockey player, whatever it is. And I think that's that's a risky argument because it's not it's not really true. We, we know from research that people typically don't commit to a sport because they've seen it on TV. That's true for some people. They're going to commit anyway. Most people uh, want to try a sport because someone they know invited them. And it's really true for curling. When I was doing this work, I talked to thousands of curlers across the country and everybody said to me, I started here because I was a teacher and my teacher friends curled or my boyfriend at the time invited me. It's always about the social relationships. And that's what we have to really kind of nurture. So you can't sustain a system that gives all the attention to elite sport by making an argument that it's going to grow the grassroots. I think those are two different conversations. And the sport grows um, in both directions by giving both of those things the attention they need. And then we're back to this discussion about well-being and and how important they are as, as spaces for this at their recreational level. Yeah, that, that's interesting, right? When you talk about uh, they're not going to get involved because they see it on TV. Because in Canada, uh, we get wall-to-wall coverage of big events, including Grand Slams and Briar and Scotties. Uh, is there any coincidence, uh, Heather, that 
although maybe we're having some difficulty with, with clubs and with growth at the grassroots level, um, is there any coincidence that other countries, though, uh, like we've, we've uh, there's, there's a club in Nigeria, there's a club in Texas, uh, India was in uh, the last, one of the last events. Italy has come to the fore. You know, Asia, right? Uh, any, anyone who follows curling at all knows they're good. And those countries that I mentioned are not traditional hockey countries, obviously, but we are, and, and it looks like we lose a lot of that because hockey, it's so hockey central. Is there any coincidence that because those other countries are not traditional winter sport countries per se, or certainly not curling uh, countries, but, but yet growth is happening in those areas? And have you looked at that on a world stage, what's happening around the West of the world compared to Canada? I haven't, but I really want to, because one of the things I think that would be really interesting is, as one of my curling friends says to me, curling has a lot of baggage around kind of the club structure. And some of these new countries, these new environments, they're developing curling and attracting curlers that's not the same way that it's evolved here. So there'll be opportunities and challenges to that. And I'd be really curious to hear how it's evolving. I know the American system is very different than the way the Canadian system has evolved. And I think it's it's allowing for more innovation, a little bit less resistance to change. We're not having to have conversations about what membership fees are because we've always had membership fees this way. Maybe membership fees can be a little higher in new environments. People aren't resistant to it because for the last 25 years, the price of things hasn't changed. You know, I think new environments can create opportunities for innovation and there could be some lessons between the Canadian context and other contexts that could be valuable on both sides. I've been approached by people from Korea and other places who want to try to mimic or try to build kind of the curling social system, but maybe not necessarily using a club uh, model. Maybe there are other ways to build in that social stuff. Right. Uh, some countries go purely elite, right? They're just, they're training high level athletes and hoping that it generates this grassroots. And I think there's just some really interesting ways of rethinking how curling can grow in those environments and then figuring out what that might mean for understanding the Canadian system and maybe tweaking it so that it's a bit more uh, open and accessible for new people to come in. I wish, uh, Heather, that uh, curling would be more like golfing in that I could go to a I can go to a golf range. I don't have to play 18 holes. I don't have to embarrass myself with a bunch of other people. I can just go hit a bunch of balls and stay over to the side in my stall. And I, I wish there was an option like that for curling that, yep. that I could go pay 20 bucks and, and throw a bunch of curling rocks with my buddies and maybe have a beer. Yep. That, that, would, that would be more fun than for <laughs> me as a terrible curler, <laughs> but, to, but to stay involved. Yep. That's, that's where I was getting with in terms of kind of um, – addressing some of this sort of conservative resistance to change, to rethinking kind of what a membership structure might look like. I have heard in past some clubs that members would share with me that they used to be able to do that. They had, they had lots and lots of sheets of ice and you could come in on a Friday afternoon and just kind of have an informal game or just practice. You know, the, the clubs were just a lot more able to operate as these sort of flexible recreation spaces. We've become quite professionalized and quite organized around some of this stuff and, and all the factors that that relates to like insurance and security and safety and all those things. We can't just have people wandering in to our clubs and throwing rocks. Like it's, it's a, it's an insurance issue, right. but I think that spirit of just for the growth of the sport and the love of the game to try to create a little more openness around what happens in the clubs so that you can go in on a Friday and, and do what you want to do. I think there, there could be some rethinking around this, around the curling system that could create space for that. You look at uh, the clubs across the country that you've analyzed. Some are very successful. Some aren't doing too well. Some are 
struggling. Mm -hmm. What do you see from your research that's caused the difference from A to B to C? It's a lot of things. There are a lot of things going on in society, right? There's a lot of demands on our time that weren't there before. There are more things going on with, you know, people have home entertainment systems and all. Like we think about leisure time as a block of time and people choose how they want to spend it. You know, 30 years ago, curling probably had a bigger chunk of people's time. And now, and now curling competes with all sorts of other things for kids and for grown-ups. So that's a factor. I also think, and I haven't tracked this recently, but I think taking curling out of most school systems, it used to be, I think, pretty across the board. Kids were exposed to curling at the at some level. My sister took it in high school. Um, I think that creates a bit of a seed that, that people might go back to in their 30s and 40s. I don't think that's uniform across the country anymore. Maybe it never was, but I know it was more prevalent. Um, and again, I, you know, I think municipalities and other local government organizations are strapped for cash. They're trying to provide a whole bunch of things to a whole bunch of people. And curling clubs just aren't at the top of their list. I had a, when I was doing research in, in the Northwest Territories, just as we were about to go up there, um, they were not a large club and they'd had a huge snow and a portion of the roof had caved in, which had destroyed half of their sheets while we were about to collect data. And the, the president of the club at the time said to me, can you tell the mayor that this just isn't a private thing that's affected a few people. We provide a service to this town where they come and they meet each other, they socialize and they play cards and they curl. We are a, we're a social service to this community, not just a private space that's had some bad luck. So it, again, it's that changing that mindset about what these clubs are and what they do. I think that that's that's a harder sell than it used to be because there are it's it's become a little harder to to figure out what's going on in these clubs I think over time and then it becomes harder to make the case that they need support just like the soccer field just like the hockey rink so I think it's a mix of things it's a, it's a complicated story uh Heather uh before you go uh if if people are listening to this and you were to say to them you know to grow the sport to look at this thing which which sounds like your heart and soul is 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 based in this thing to to improve and grow leisure sports which curling falls under what would you say would be the number one or two things uh that someone would take away from this uh, from you when you say here's what you can do to help grow the sport that's a tough question it's not it's not that simple of course i i think that creating an environment if it's a small club or a big club really thinking through what it's like for someone who doesn't understand the sport, has never played it or really seen it, what it might be like for them to come into your space. Remember that curling is social, fundamentally social. And so if that social comfort or safety isn't in place, you've kind of lost an opportunity to, to bring people in. So I think when we're immersed in something and we love it so much, we lose track of what it might look like from the outside. And so I'd invite people in clubs to just think about what it's like in their club, invite someone new into their club, but make sure that when they come through that door, uh, they feel welcome and they feel invited and then support them right. as they figure out kind of where they want to be in the sport and how they want to participate. Thank you so much for coming on. Dr. Heather Mayer is with the Department of Recreation and Leisure, leisure Studies. At the, I keep having trouble with leisure. I don't know. I don't know why. First day with a new tongue. Yeah, I certainly, I, mean, I have trouble saying it. I certainly don't have any trouble doing it. I'll tell you. <laughs> is with the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies at the University of Waterloo. Uh, doctor, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Happy New Year. And uh, good luck going forward with all your studies and research. Thanks a lot. This is a pleasure. Thanks, Heather. 
Well, there you have it. Boy, sounds like that's a great person to have in your corner uh, if you're a fan of curling or you're trying to grow the sport. Uh, boy, she had lots to say. Uh, and another person that's way smarter than all of us, again, uh, who's on the show. That seems to happen a lot, Jim, where we bring in yeah, people really smarter does. than us. <laughs> really but Jim, leave Kevin and I out of this. Just refer to No, it. no, Me. I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, boy, she had a lot to say, and I bet she'd have a lot more to say. She'd be, you know, I could go for hours with talking about trying to grow sports. You know, this is at a time, right, too, Kev, when, when Tim Hortons, of course, is, is pulling out. I'm not sure what that means or, or what their reasons were, but uh, what did you think of everything she had to say, Kev? Well, she had a lot to say, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, one thing that kind of stuck with me is the idea of of that generally you, you come into curling because your parents did or, or a family member or you're invited by somebody. Hey, come come to the club. Let's come over and throw some rocks, and then all of a sudden they get in, make some friends, and the people thirty years later are still involved with the club. That might be something that that really can change a lot of the clubs that are struggling a bit. If you've got, I don't know, three hundred members, but you need to have eight hundred. Well, three hundred members go out and uh, bring in two or three new people. Just do it as a club, right? And you're going to notice immediately a big impact to your facility because. For the most part, people that try curling do enjoy it, Jim. The, 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 the issue, too, and another thing that Heather brought up is, is uh, the idea of getting kids trying it. A curling like golf is very difficult if, you're, if you don't try to throw a stone till you're 40. Kind of like golf. You're not bendy enough when you're 40 to really start hitting it. You know, it's, it's hard. So it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Whereas if you tried it as a kid, you, you throw some rocks in school or junior high or high school, and you get sort of okay at it. It's a lot easier to get that person to come back to the sport when they're 40, when they've had kids and, and the, the husband and wife want to, you know, go to the rink and just do something in their, on their Thursday evening when the kids aren't doing their activity. You know, it's a good idea. There's not a person more passionate about curling on the planet uh, than you, Warren. And I know you take a lot of this to heart uh, because you've devoted and dedicated your life to the growth of the sport and you've done so much for it. Uh, when you hear what Heather has to say, Warren, wh wh what's your reaction to it? I think everything she had to say is, uh, I'm curious about all of it. I, I think we need a huge amount of work to be done. She could be certainly a person who could help spearhead the, the whole aspect. I think Curling Canada has to sit down with the provincial associations and they got to start talking and they got to determine exactly what the issue is and they got to figure out a game plan as to how they're going to approach it. And that isn't a, a running a business of curling seminar in a couple of provinces, running some ads on television and in local newspapers. It's, I think you've got to get some people that are dedicated to working on this whole thing, that they know what they're doing. Possibly they have to go from club to club and work with certain clubs individually. But I think it's, it's a huge issue. Exactly how do you solve it? I don't think we know the answers. No one does. But they've got to start talking about it at the national level, down to the provinces, and they're not doing it. We were just talking off air there for a second. Uh, one of our producers, who's a curling fan, was saying he tried to find what was open over the holidays and, and couldn't find it online, you know. Well, and, and there's a good example of he lives in North Vancouver. And as I mentioned, uh, we were talking, North Vancouver had three facilities. One was uh, owned by the municipality, the North Shore Rec Center, the North Shore Winter Club, and the Hollyburn Winter Club. Uh, off the top of my head, that accounts for about 30 sheets of ice. Gone doesn't exist anymore, period. Uh, go out and give it a try. Uh, another show in the books, boys. Uh, that was great. Thanks a lot to uh, Dr. Heather Mayer, of course, and for all you guys for listening. Uh, we'd also like to give uh, Rod Paulson a big thank you. He runs our Facebook stuff. 
his company is called In-House Strategies. Take a look at the Facebook page. It is active, man, and there's lots going on there, lots of back and forth, and Warren responds to um, a lot of it. Uh, also, a reminder, uh, we do emails, as you know, our email segment, and uh, you could get your email, perhaps, read on air, insidecurling at gmail.com. Thanks again to Sports Interaction Coyote, Boost, and Goldline, who make Inside Curling possible. A second time, Happy New Year, boys. Okay, I celebrate it right till Easter, okay? Or I used to. <laughs> you used to. I, I used to. That's t- good, Jim. Past tense. <laughs> Take it easy, Kevin. We'll see you later, Warren. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jimmy.